This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I will uh, discuss today uh, the relation between inflammation and uh, metabolism and metabolic homeostasis and disease susceptibility. Uh, so inflammation is uh, a protective uh, response to a variety of challenges that we may experience, including infection and injury and various types of uh, tissue stress and malfunctions and all the things that can go wrong. All of them can induce an inflammatory response that, that meant to be protective. And uh, depending on the type of challenge that we experience, there's different physiological or intended purpose of the responses, such as uh, host defense from infection, tissue repair response, or restoration of a normal state of the tissues. And what is uh, very interesting about inflammation and very clinically important is that uh, all these different pathways to inflammation can result in, in a variety of pathological sequelae including autoimmune diseases, sepsis, uh, fibrotic diseases, tumor growth, and a variety of diseases of homeostasis that are becoming more and more common in modern uh, lifestyles. To give a very, very simplified summary of inflammation, uh, of inflammatory pathway, when inducers of inflammation, such as pathogens or tissue damage, are encountered, uh, cells in our body, such as macrophages and epithelial cells and so on, detect this inducers and produce various inflammatory mediators, including cytokines that uh, some of them were mentioned already. And what these mediators do, they act on practically every uh, tissue in the body and they change some functional characteristics that intend to uh, either cause elimination of whatever caused inflammation or adaptation to the presence of these conditions. And why inflammation is so broadly associated with diseases, um, uh, very um, symbolically it could be uh, summarized here. So for every trait, including uh, defense traits, uh, there are are benefits and costs. For defenses, the costs are particularly pronounced. And the traits would be evolutionarily stable if if the benefits uh, are higher than the costs. And anything in this a uh, green part of the triangle would be, therefore, potentially uh, evolutionarily stable, and everything here would be unstable. And the problem is that um, in the case of uh, traits that have very, can provide very high benefits, such as uh, survival, the acceptable cost can also be very high. And that uh, leads to this type of picture, where uh, the part of this uh, upper triangle that's on the right side where benefit can still outweigh the cost, but in terms of the absolute value of the cost, this would be already, from the patient perspective at least, and the doctor's perspective, this would be already in the disease zone. This would be uh, conditions that we would experience as something that is definitely not well-being, and uh, doctors would diagnose as being various types of pathological or disease conditions, even though they are still um, provide more benefit than the cost. And what we are interested in is in, this, uh, in the biology of this upper right uh, corner, where the high benefits associated with very high costs and where we basically at the, on the edge of the uh, chaos or transition into the uh, pathological states that can be um, uh, potentially lethal. 
And uh, this type of biology uh, deals with uh, not just common conditions uh, like uh, mild infections or mild uh, anomalies, but it has to do with uh, essentially biology of survival. What, what are the kinds of mechanisms that are employed uh, by our system, uh, by our organism, um, in order to survive critical conditions, the ones that are just one step away from death. And this is just uh, in a very schematic way summarized here. So if we consider this type of a disease tree, there are many conditions that we, we can are one step away from health. These are various common mild illnesses. Uh, these are conditions that make you uh, go to see your primary care physician. If there are complications of these conditions, you get referred to some internal medicine specialist. These are more complex diseases. Uh, but you can still recover and go back to health. And in severe cases, you can get into this critical illness state when you get into uh, ICU. And you still can recover from here. And, and in this critical illness state, which is conditions like sepsis, pneumonia, heart attack, brain damage, and so forth, uh, in these conditions, uh, you are one step away from these three uh, proximal uh, mechanisms that lead directly to death. And these are points of no return, which is respiratory failure, cardiovascular failure, or damage to the brain areas that control respiration and uh, cardiovascular function. So we're interested in what happens here, what kind of mechanisms may be evolved to prevent this transition into this point of no return. The case I will discuss today has to do with this very um, enigmatic and uh, very interesting and very familiar to everyone uh, set of uh, conditions known as sickness behaviors. This is something everybody in this room experienced when you have flu or any other type of severe uh, infection or other types of acute illness. We all experience this uh, set of conditions uh, such as loss of appetite, social withdrawal, fatigue, uh, slippiness, and so on and so forth. So these are, these are all stereotypic conditions that are associated with acute illness, most commonly with acute infections. So flu symptoms would all be in that category. And uh, the biology of sickness behavior has not been uh, really well understood, although there were early studies that uh, demonstrated that sickness behavior is, is not just a consequence of system being destroyed by a pathogen, but rather these are motivated behaviors. In other words, they are intended by the organism for some reason. And there's been many speculations that whether various aspects of sickness behavior perhaps help the immune system to fight the infection, or maybe there is some other way that they may contribute to dealing with uh, acute uh, illness. And uh, so we were interested in investigating uh, aspects of acute illness, including loss of appetite and uh, uh, change in sleeping patterns, and how they may contribute to survival, um, to survival of the acute illness. So, there are two ways that we can uh, survive an infection uh, or any other challenge for that matter. Uh, we can either resist it. So in the case of infection, normally we would be in this state where we are healthy and there is a low or, neg or uh, a negligible pathogen load. And uh, as we get infected and pathogen uh, expand, we can become ill as indicated by this position. And from here, we can either go back to health by getting rid of pathogen, which is the role of the immune system, and this is uh, referred to as a resistance to disease, or we can uh, adapt to the presence of the pathogen uh, and 
go back to the healthy state despite uh, microbial load, and this would be referred to uh, increased tolerance to infection or tolerance to damage. There are two, two ways that pathogens cause damage. One is directly through tissue destruction, through toxins, virulence factors, and so forth. And the second, uh, more common way that pathogens, uh, infections called illness, is uh, due to uh, damage by the inflammation caused by infection. And so we were interested in figuring out whether sickness behaviors provide benefit, first of all. Secondly, whether they provide benefit because they promote uh, immune function and resistance to infection, or whether they provide uh, benefit by promoting tissue protection and tolerance to inflammatory damage or pathogen-induced damage. So uh, just like in humans, in mice, uh, or in any animals that's been studied, uh, all the way back to insects, uh, when they are ill uh, uh, with uh, acute infection, they stop eating. This is food consumption in mice after they received uh, a dose of listeria infection. This is a common food poisoning type of infection. They stop eating and until they start clearing infection and they start recovering and then they start eating again. But there is a very profound uh, anorexia associated with infection, as you can see here. So uh, some studies uh, done over 40 years ago actually found that in the same model of listeria infection, if mice are force-fed, then mortality increases. And this is what we reproduce here. So this is uh, showing survival of mice that are given LD50 dose of listeria, dose that kills half of mice. And this is what's shown here. And if they're force fat, then all of them die. And they're fat just 20% uh, of daily caloric intake. So they're not really stuffed with food. They're just given a little bit of food, and that kills them. And the food we use is actually uh, the same food that's used in ICU units. And then we asked what component of food kills. And uh, so uh, we gave them separately proteins, uh, uh, fat, and sugar. And it turns out that sugar alone, or glucose alone, was sufficient to kill them, whether it was given orally or uh, intraperitoneally. So just giving them a small dose of sugar, only 2% of normal daily caloric intake of glucose, was sufficient to kill 100% of mice. And conversely, if we gave them glucose inhibitor called 2-DG, 2-deoxyglucose, it's a modified form of glucose that cannot be metabolized, so it blocks glucose utilization, then 100% of mice would survive. And importantly, this was not because the immune system was affected uh, in its ability to, treat, to get rid of the pathogen, and it's not because there was higher dose of uh, higher magnitude of inflammation, because these were not different between mice giving glucose or not, as you can see here. So this indicated that mice survived or died from this manipulation because of increase because of the effect on tissue protection, not on the immune function itself. So then we asked what would happen in a more severe condition like sepsis. Uh, sepsis is the, the uh, condition when infection becomes systemic, when it gets into blood. In this case, it's a bacterial sepsis that's mimicked by giving mice this component, uh, endotoxin or LPS. Uh, and as you can see here, if mice given LPS or septic mice, if they're given food, they die compared to control where they're just giving saline solution. And importantly, if they're just given sugar, then they all that drop dead. 
But most excitingly, if they're just giving this simple drug that blocks glucose utilization, then 100% of them can be rescued from sepsis. And sepsis is a, is a really terrible, intractable condition that is uh, very, still uh, very common cause of death in ICUs. So again, the mortality or protection from death in these manipulations was not dependent on the degree of inflammation, as shown here with example of one of a uh, couple of inf uh, inflammatory mediators, and it again indicating that it was due to uh, increased tissue protection from uh, damage caused by severe inflammation that is associated with sepsis. Then we asked what would happen in a different type of infection. So, so far it showed you bacterial infection and bacterial sepsis. And now we asked what would happen in influenza virus infection. So when mice are infected with flu virus, again, they undergo this period of anorexia when they stop eating until they start recovering. And if they're force-fed, to our great surprise, they actually survive better. So this is uh, now giving uh, almost lethal dose of flu infection. Most mice die, but when they are giving that uh, food, uh, most of them survived. And also, if they are giving glucose, that also provided partial protection. And if they are given 2-DG glucose inhibitor, then all of them dropped dead. So it was exact opposite to what happened in bacterial infection and bacterial sepsis. And again, the effect of glucose uh, was not due to its impact on inflammatory response. So in, in viral infections, it's a different type of inflammatory response, which is dominated by uh, interferons shown here. They're the same. And the dose uh, burden of the virus in the lungs was also the same, was not different. Again, suggesting the effects are due to impact on tolerance to tissue damage. And the data that I'm not going to show, but I summarize here, uh, what we found is that death from um, viral inflammation was associated with decline in vital functions, like respiration, and blood pressure, and so on, suggesting that there was a failure in autonomic control centers in the brainstem. And if mice are given food or glucose, then these declines in autonomic functions could be rescued. If they're given 2-DG, they're enhanced. In contrast, death from bacterial sepsis was associated with neuronal damage in the midbrain area, and, uh, and it was also the death was immediately preceded by convulsions. And, both of, and these were blocked by 2-DG, and they were enhanced by glucose. So we did PET scan analysis and found that glucose utilization under conditions of bacterial inflammation versus viral inflammation was very different, and it segregated exactly to these two brain areas, such that in viral inflammation, it was primarily in brainstem, uh, and in bacterial inflammation, it was in midbrain area. So, in, and the, the delivery or increased delivery of glucose to these areas uh, related to the impact of glucose or glucose inhibitors on the damage to these areas. And then we asked what is the mechanism of damage and what's happening there. So I will just summarize that part of the study. Uh, what we found was that in the case of viral inflammation, what happens with cells that are infected with the virus, one of the things that happens, uh, there is a particular type of 
cellular stress response, known as unfolded protein response, that has two branches. One branch tries to adapt to this stress condition and to resolve it, and if that fails, the second branch would kill the cells as a second option. And this death from this response is mediated by this particular gene called CHOP. It's a transcription factor. So then we asked whether, uh, and what is known is that uh, glucose deprivation can exacerbate in unfolded protein response, this stress response pathway. And so we hypothesized that that brainstem area, the neurons in the, in the brainstem, for reasons that remain uh, mysterious, uh, underwent this excessive unfold protein response stress that was ameliorated by glucose and exacerbated by 2DG. And then we asked whether this pathway of cell death or neuronal damage mediated by this gene is involved. And for that, we asked whether mice that have a mutation in this gene, whether they would be rescued from the effect of uh, such inflammatory manipulation. And indeed, what we found, if we just look at this blue line, these are mice that, are, that have um, infection, uh, uh, that have viral inflammation, and they're given 2DG, they all die. And if they don't have that gene chop, then they all survive. And so the mechanism here is related to blockade of this pathway for neuronal dysfunction. And finally, in the case of uh, sepsis or bacterial inflammation, uh, fasting metabolism that protected them from death uh, was related to the switch from a normal fat metabolism to fasted metabolism, which is uh, there is a switch to fuels from glucose to ketones. And that switch was necessary for mice to survive sepsis. And this is shown here, that giving glucose blocked transition to uh, fasting metabolism and deletion of the gene that is responsible for ketone uh, production uh, made mice susceptible to uh, sepsis. And what, as I mentioned, immediately before death, mice had convulsion in sepsis. So, what we did in this final set of experiments, if we gave the mice anti-epileptic drug called valporic acid, uh, then we could rescue them from death even uh, when they're given glucose. And so that indicated that the reason that that worked is because valporic acid, unlike this other drug shown here, which is Keppra, which is also anti-convulsion drug, valporic acid, one of its mechanisms is related to the effect, uh, to the same effect uh, that ketones have on a particular class of enzymes in the cell. So I will summarize it here, that there are two different pathways to death, and fasting metabolism is protective in one case and detrimental in the other case. And uh, the final the implication for human uh, treatment in ICU is that all clinical trials done so far with nutrient modification, manipulation in ICU units have been done on patients that have not been separated on, based on cause of sepsis, bacterial versus viral, and, and the results of these studies were mixed. And we think that it's because they were not separated and they basically canceled each other out. So uh, now we are planning to conduct a clinical trial where we'll separate them uh, based on cause of sepsis. And uh, so this is the summary. And finally, uh, this work was done by three very talented scientists in the lab, uh, Harding uh, Luan, uh, Sarah Huin, and Andrew Wong. And we had help uh, from other colleagues at Yale. And thank you for your attention. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.